Sometimes it's talked about that there are uh, three deepening levels of motivation that uh, fuels our practice, that energizes our practice, that helps us maintain interest in our practice. At first, often we begin, and they're not completely separate from each other. We can actually feel them working together. At first, when we start, often there's a sense of uh, wanting to practice to just help our life become uh, more peaceful, more comfortable, uh, to develop some more skills so we can be, perhaps be more functional in the world, perhaps have more confidence, strength, power. In a certain way, the spiritual marketplace is very full of <coughs> these kinds of um, you know, selling points for spiritual practice. You know, become more wealthy, powerful, healthy, and so on. Uh, if you practice mindfulness, if you practice whatever. And it's, and it's fair enough. I mean, it's, sometimes it um, can be a bit shallow and... And maybe even a bit distorting sometimes of the Dharma, but still it gets us started. It gets people started and gets us started. And they're, they're, it's not altogether bad things to aim for, to, to aim to be more happy and to make, aim to be more skillful <coughs> in our daily life is very good. But the difficulty sometimes in, in that aim or that motivation is that it starts to fall apart when we inevitably meet the challenges that we're going to meet as we un- engage and undertake this uh, way of awakening. So, so we have to, at that point, realize that inevitably we're going to meet uh, the experience of, of dukkha, the experience of suffering, as we've been contemplating during our retreat. If we want to meditate to get peaceful, we can go so far with that, but we will be challenged, we will experience some kind of suffering or other in our, in our meditation, in our life. Or we will, or in psychological terms, we'd say we have to meet our shadow, all the things we don't really like to see in ourselves, our anger and our fear and our hatreds and our biases. Unconsciousness, all of that, we we're going to is going to become more conscious to us as we start to investigate more, as we become more gathered and more clear. It's like we have a clearer mirror that reflects much more accurately what's happening in the body, heart, heart and mind, what our intentions are. It's harder to sort of get away with things <laughs> because we're. <laughs> We, you know, we feel much more acutely the results of what we're doing and how we live and what we're saying and what we buy and how we're using the planet. All of that, as we become more conscious and aware, we we feel it more acutely. We just can't blunder through life in quite the same way. And so, if we don't have a, multi- a motivation, a second level of motivation, which which is really starts to deepen when we, when we start to practice to free the heart from suffering. We become interested, as Ajahn Chah encouraged, not just having a, a good lawyer using meditation spirit, spiritual practices to spring us out of difficulty when we get ourselves in trouble, but we start to become interested in what takes us into difficulty in the first place. And, and, the, and, the, and therefore the motivation to stay with the difficulty, so that we can understand it and overcome it, overcome it becomes a, a deeper commitment to our practice. It helps us to stay here when things aren't easy, to stay within the container I was talking about the other evening. But it's said an even deeper motivation that we can cultivate and that we inevitably start to uncover as we understand and see the nature of our circumstance more clearly, we begin to realize perhaps that the motivation just to work 
to free ourselves from suffering, although that's a, a positive motivation, an important one, there's a certain level of illusion in it, because as we start to understand the nature of reality, we start to realize our self is completely interconnected with the other, other self, with other beings. That if we're helping ourselves, we're inevitably going to be helping others. If we're helping others, on some level, we're helping ourselves. And so this deepest motivation is said to be the motivation of of compassion that, that arises from the understanding and the sensitivity that if we're suffering, others suffer. And therefore, if we become more clear and more skilled in our practice and in our living and in our expression of the Dharma, we will be able to help others. This motivation is called bodhicitta, the heart of awakening, the heart of bodhi, and the heart of compassion that starts to want to not only practice for our own benefit, but realizes actually through our practice we can dedicate, we can offer the fruits of our practice for others. We practice also for others. We practice for the world. When we sit here, as Titnat Han says, we're sitting for the world. At first we think it was just us. But there's a certain way that we're holding this space for, for all beings. There are many, many beings that can't sit and hold a space of awareness and consciousness to be present with the, the experience of embodiment in the way that we have been. So we can, this, the third or, or uh, most profound level of motivation, the bodhicitta, is something we can begin to cultivate and hone. And it's very deliberately done in Buddhist practice, like at the end of every day we dedicate blessings for others. We don't try and just keep everything for ourselves, we keep having, even on a subtle level, maybe dedicate, like in a prayerful way, may in some way our practice be of benefit for others. And this is a very beautiful, natural expression of the human heart and the the outcome, one of the fruits of our awakening. Even the Buddha, after his enlightenment, he realized, he, there was a moment when he realized that one, as, as, as is said in the suttas, one who has nothing to serve lives unhappily. That one needs something to serve, to offer something larger than oneself to offer into, to offer to, to serve. And he looked around and wondered who could he serve? And then he realized he's the Buddha, hey, <laughs> you know, it's harder to find someone to serve because he, others would be offering to him. So then he thought, well, what he could serve, he could serve this Dharma. This is what he would serve. He would serve the, the truth, the Dharma, and help the Dharma wheel turn in the world, which is what he did. And then he set about for 40 years and taught the Dharma and established orders and helped with disputes and advised kings and enlightened people from all walks of life. And it, was, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't an easy thing. It was a very, very challenging. But he just kept going. He just kept doing it. People trying to kill him, people trying to challenge him through famines, through wars. He just kept any opportunity. In the mornings he would turn his divine eye and and look around to see who would be open to be able to hear his teaching. (coughs) Once there was, he was at a gathering of disciples and he was going to give a teaching and it said that there was this really decrepit and beggar that came to the assembly. He, had le- he was a leper and he was, 
he wasn't someone that people wanted around. And the guy came because he thought, oh, maybe there'd be some food on offer. So he, in his mind, he wasn't coming to hear the Dharma. In other people's minds, he was an outcast. But the Buddha realized that he was the one that would be able to hear his teaching. And so it said in the Sutta that he gave the graduated teaching on, on the benefits of offering dana, on the benefits of renunciation, on the benefits of sila, and ethics, on the cultivation of mind and body. And then he offered the teaching, as it said, peculiar to the Buddhas, which is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, at which point this guy, called, his name was Super Buddha the leper, became awakened. So you never know. <laughs> you never know. You never know who's who. And who is in the moment of ripening. One shouldn't judge the external package of different beings. You never know the moment for you. Or the trigger for you for something to shift and awaken. And so there's this this way that the Dharma is very mysterious, both the offering it and the serving of, uh, serving of it, but also the awakening to it. So this bodhicitta is, is connected with this ideal of the bodhisattva, one who dedicates their life, who dedicates their energy to the Dharma, to awakening, but does so with a, with a, with a certain kind of movement and mo- motivation that draws out out from just I'm doing this just for me into how can you know that may the expression of my awakening and my service of the Dharma however that manifests whether it's planting a garden whether it's our work whether it's in our relationships whether it's teaching whether it's fighting some activist battle in on one of the front many front lines nowadays whether it's sitting in a hermitage, you know, may our activity, may this bodhicitta, this bodhisattva, may I, I stay home to this intentionality that it be of benefit for others as well, for the planet, for the earth, for family, for community. When I first, one of the first, um, I mean, I heard about these bodhisattva vows when I first started practicing. I vow to the last blade of grass is enlightened. I vow to stay and help all living beings or some such thing. And at that time, I was a real Theravada wanting to just get off the wheel of samsara and there was like no way that I would ever think of vowing to stay around until the last blade of grass was enlightened and I read that with absolute horror (laughs) and then one day I found myself sitting, attending some teachings from the Holiness's Dalai Lama in London and he always begins his teaching by giving the bodhisattva vows and because I was sitting there with a whole bunch of monastics and everyone went like this and started repeating them, I did the same and then I came out in a cold sweat afterwards. <laughs> I, what have I done? I've just, you know, I've just a vow. I can hardly bear to be with my fellow monastics for a day. And now I've vowed to be with every being until the end of all the eons, until empty space disappears. I just was actually, I was in a real philosophical dilemma about this, and it was with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, of all people. You know, it's not something light that you, you know, you just happen to slip out and you just say, it ha-, you know, there, it was this, you know, there's this whole, I was in a terrible state about it. So I went to my teacher and said, I've done this terrible thing. <laughs> I didn't say that actually. I just I said I've done this. You know, I've taken these bodhisattva vows. You know, I don't know if I can undo them. I mean, what does it mean? I mean, does it mean that? I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I want to be reincarnated. I mean, isn't the whole point to be not reincarnated and to disappear into a cloud of nibbana? Isn't that where I want? That's where I want to go. So anyway, I was a little young in my practice in those days, and it's all coming from the sense of self, which is 
a little tricky territory to base such things on, these, these great vows. And so my teacher at that time, he just says, well, you know, he said, really, don't worry. <laughs> he said, you know, it's not, you, it's not, an, it's not about the self. The self isn't going to do that. It's not really you as a self. He said, it's an intentionality. It's a deeper intentionality. And it's really about having the depth of patience to be with how it is in each moment, to be willing to cross the living beings over of the moment in whatever circumstance you're in. It's a, it's a, it's a vow of what they call in Zen, the long-enduring mind, which isn't like you hanker down and endure and endure, but it's the vow, whatever it takes, to be here for however long it takes. That's what the bodhicitta heart is about. So it it was like a really lovely sense of, oh, I I might not be very good at that, but it's kind of doable. I could work at that little by little, to try and just be here a bit more fully for my life and, uh, and for whatever happens, you know, all sorts of stuff happens. And vow to keep trying to work with it and awaken, and as awakening, as a, a way of awakening, any fruits, just keep trying to give them away on whatever level they manifest on. So this great, it, it takes, this practice takes a lot of patience. One, one of the teachings that the Buddha gave at, a, at an assembly of awakened beings, he gave a teaching when there was a gathering on the full moon of what's called Magha Puja, the full moon of February. There was a huge gathering of disciples that came together to hear the Buddha's teaching. Somehow they just knew to come. They didn't get an email. They just arrived and they sat. And you'd have to think, what kind of teaching would a Buddha give to a group of already awakened beings? And he gave a teaching, it's called the Uwada Padimoka, which is setting out the basic guidelines for his disciples, which begins with the word patience. Patience is the ultimate tapas, the ultimate practice for burning away the unwholesome, the obstructions, the hindrances. Being patient, being here in a way where we hang in and patient as the moments of path activity come into fruition according to their own unfolding. Patient with, as we practice, often in our meditation, and we would have experienced that this week, often what we're with is the karmic material from the past, what's called the sankara, the flow of patterning. And some of this is not easy to be with, you know, profound places of disconnection somehow, or, or anxiety, or not really wanting to be here fully, or resistance, or confusion, or wounds that, that are very profound for us, but we don't even quite know where they came from or what they are, or even have a language, but there's just a hurt that makes it hard for us to be here. <coughs> so to this is being with these, these are beings, these are beings, they're not external beings so much, but they're beings of what's called the beings of, the, of our own self-nature. And the more we're present for them, the more compassion we bring and patience, then we're crossing those beings over, helping them come home. All the voices that we hear, all the feelings that come up. And some of these kinds of beings take a long time to get, to get home. They have a lot of juice in them, we put a lot of energy in them over the years. There's a really beautiful teaching that uh, can help, help us be with that which is painful, that which is difficult, that which is suffering, 
whether it's in ourself or in relationship. And as we start to think about moving out from our retreat, day after tomorrow, these qualities of the natural heart, the Brahma-viharas, these energies that are very wholesome can really be friends along the way. It can really support our ability to be in relationship with the ups and downs and the difficulties and challenges of life in a way where we maintain a wholesome abiding. It's Brahma. Brahma is a heavenly realm. Vihara means a dwelling. To learn to dwell within, internally within and cultivate these qualities of heart that are heavenly, that are divine. And of course many of you know these, there's many qualities of the heart that, are, that have this divinity about them. But these four are taught and, and um, made much of in Buddhist practice and they're, they're very beautiful because they're very accessible for us and they arise naturally they're, they're inherent within the heart they arise naturally as the heart becomes freer from obstructions they're just the natural expression of the heart in relationship the quality the first one of metre or metta kindliness friendliness, befriending the second one of karuna, compassion, mercy, empathy, <coughs> care, sensitivity to suffering. The fourth one, mudita, meaning to, to wish for the success of others, to see the goodness in the world and to attune to that, to attune to the beauty and the joyful and the happiness in life. And the last one, upeka, to see with an even mind, to see and be steady in the face of the both the ups and the downs of life, all of the worldly winds, to have a cultivate a heart that can meet the challenges with some more equanimity, with serenity, with acceptance. Each of these qualities arise spontaneously, but they also can be consciously cultivated in our practice. And they're very, very powerful. They can be really powerful, really supportive, and they really are at the heart of this bodhicitta, this bodhisattva way. The ability to to you know, it's not, it's, it's not easy to feel meta-kindness to others when we feel we've been hard done by, betrayed, wounded. But as we contemplate this quality, we can actually realise that it's possible, even if we don't really have feel very, you know, may everyone be well. And it's like, no, I don't really feel that. <laughs> may this one be well and that one be well. No, I actually can't stand them. You know, we sometimes, you know, we might want to have a quality of metta or sometimes we really have a wound that's been inflicted by the unskillfulness of others. And it can really hurt. And so it might be unrealistic to think, well, I want to wish that person well. But what we can do, we can, what is a very powerful practice, and, and sometimes when I realize that my heart has been hurt and it's not able to extend, I'm not able to be fully forgiving right in this moment. It takes time sometimes, realistically, but what I can work at and what is very important to work at and what is the essence of this of this cultivation of this maitri, the Sanskrit word literally means to keep the heart soft open, pliable not to harden and close and defend the heart so what I can do is really not to dwell in hatred not to dwell in aversion <coughs> not to dwell in bitterness it doesn't help me it doesn't help anyone else and then 
in moments being able to extend this is a very the, the essence of this quality of friendliness befriending sending out a vibration of kindness of loving kindness is to be able to do it impartially to enemy and friend self and other neutral and loved hated and you don't know who they are it's a very evolved quality, it's a very lovely quality, whether we like or we dislike, whether there's pain in the heart about someone or whether we really love someone. It's, be, it's being able to reflect, the encouragement in this practice is to be able to reflect in a way where one can extend this friendliness, this meta well-wishing. May I wish for the welfare of another. May they be well, may they be free from harm. And we can do this for our enemies, for our loved ones, for neutral people, for and for ourselves, most importantly. And, the, and this, 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 this um, ability to cultivate this practice has a lot of power in it. It's said to help protect the heart from hatred, to protect the heart from fear, to protect the heart from paranoia. I used to practice it in those cocktail parties in Johannesburg that I was telling you about. <laughs> the Buddha used to say, you practice it in the jungle, you know, with wild animals. And I used to practice it. I mean, for me, it would be easier to walk in the jungle than to go into a cocktail party. It were, you know, the social thing is pretty scary in those environments. So I will try and practice just going, may everyone here be well, <laughs> including me. And it would actually just, it would really help for a while. <laughs> yeah. Going into, so if we feel fear, to be able to replace the fear with realizing this deeper intention is, I'm here not to harm. And it said, that if this becomes a strong power in our life, then we become immune from, from certain kinds of violences. We become more protected. It said we become protected by the devas. We become beloved by the humans and the non-humans. We get to be, be able to sleep more easily, <coughs> wake more without all the heaviness so much dread that we can feel. We develop a beautiful countenance. <laughs> doesn't mean we're going to be on Vogue magazine or whatever, but it means that the inner beauty can shine through. You know, sometimes you can see a very aged and wrinkled person and they've lived such a beautiful life that their beauty shines through. It's not about the form of the body, but it's about what can shine through sometimes. It's said, interestingly enough, that a heart of metta, when this is well developed, the mind concentrates very quickly. So it's if you're finding that you're having difficulty in your samatha calming meditation practice and there's minds flying all over the place, lots of stuff going on, if you just take a moment to receive without any judgment what you're experiencing with this heart of compassion and kindness, then it often helps the mind calm down. If you extend into your environment, if you're feeling disturbed, may all of this be well. It will help you to stay focused and steady. And it's said if we, you know, when we come to die, if we've cultivated this this skill of metta through a lifetime, then it's easier to let go. And depending on whether we subscribe to rebirth or not, some do, some don't. But it's said that in the suttas, that if one reappears in another form, one will reappear in a heavenly realm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it helps to alleviate the forces that drag one into extreme states of suffering. So for some people, this is a practice, this is their main practice. Just developing this attitude of kindness and friendliness and, and cultivating this heart. 
may I be well, may others be well. It's a beautiful practice. And then very near to that, the second great stream of the Brahma Viharas, it's very similar, but it's a little bit more resonant with suffering. This karuna means to resonate with, to feel, to be sensitive to the experience of suffering, and not only to feel it and resonate with suffering, but to have the wish to alleviate suffering. So it's both receptive and at its deepest level, this Kuan Yin listening, and as we mentioned, was mentioned in our exercise this afternoon, some of the most profound alleviation of suffering comes through the activity of someone just really, really receiving another and listening to them and hearing them. If you've really been heard deeply, sometimes it can help resolve all kinds of sufferings. But also it it has coupled with this, it has a dynamic side. If I can do something to help, then I should really do what I can. Like when we were, when we arrived in South Africa, we kept in a rural South Africa, we realized, you know, there was all the euphoria and the fear of the post-apartheid world that we (coughs) arrived into, just on the cusp of it changing. But what we also began to realize quite quickly, we arrived into the middle of um, the AIDS pandemic in one of the places where it had hit the most ferociously in the whole in the whole world, in the province where we lived, at a time when there wasn't any antiretrovirals or any programs. I mean, now there's a lot that's happening, and you know, day after day, we get people turning up with all sorts of problems as a result of this, and as a result of a post-apartheid society where their communities had been shattered, the Zulu communities. And it wasn't appropriate just to say, well, I'm just practicing my Brahma Viharas on my meditation cushion, please can you go away, wait till I'm enlightened. You know, it's like, well, what do you need, and what can I do? You know, so... So that became very powerful for us to be engaged. We had a family that lived with us for eight years and through that family we got introduced to the challenges of the rural community with very little resources. And it was it was a real challenge because sometimes there also was the need for boundaries of what what was the limit to what one could do. And then other times there was really a need to extend and to get up in the middle of the night when something was something was going down in the family or in the community. Rush someone to hospital or whatever it was, you know. So there's 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 it's a, it's this how to extend this compassion in a wise way to do what one can, but also to know sometimes one's limits or to find the most effective ways to respond. This is the work of compassion guided by wisdom. So there's, that's, that's quite heavy sometimes. So the balance that, this, this th- the third Brahmavahara of Mudita, which is a, is a very, very beautiful quality. It's about the heart's when it's open and it really feels the beauty of life. It really wishes, it, it not only feels beauty and joy and the goodness, it not only hones in a practice, often we can just go to the suffering, go to the suffering, but it's so important to also notice internally what is really healthy and wholesome here. Trusting our intentions are wholesome. Trusting our, you know, what we bring to the moments of our experience is looking at the, the wholesome in that, not just judging and critiquing all the time ourselves and others. Looking at others with that light, and even more extending the true essence of this uh, third form of Vihara is to wish for the success of others, to that their success increases, which is kind of hard. It's supposed to be. <coughs> Traditionally, a way of alleviating 
and dissolving the tendency towards envy and jealousies. So if someone, you know, instead of overly competing, but actually seeing how can I promote the welfare of another. And that's quite an evolved quality for us as human beings. Because it's more like, how can that person that's doing so well fall in a pit? (laughs) So, but if we get in this bodhisattva heart, if we expand enough and include enough, we realize the more we help everyone, it helps everyone. The more everyone is helped out of the pit, whatever pit it is, the more it helps us, the more it helps everyone. You know, we, we don't have to hold on and hoard it up as we're, we tend to want to do, thinking that's the way. <coughs> we, you know, the more we hold, the less, in a certain way, we're going to feel this depth of joy that comes when we just let things flow through us, share it. So the Upeka, this last great stream of the heart's natural expression, is is a really profound quality, this this learning to be more even, even though we wobble all over the place, but learning to be more even in the face of all the ups and downs, learning to, to actually be willing to work with the difficult as well as receive the joyful. Learning to, to even our response so that there can be some stability and not just be completely pulled around by our reactivity. And on a greater level, learning to realize on some level we can't fix the whole world. We can do what we can and hopefully at this particular juncture we can, I hope we can do a lot because a lot, a lot needs to happen to ensure our sustainability fast. We don't, we have a small window, otherwise it's going to be unthinkable what we'll be facing. But it might not, it might not happen. It might be that we witness, a, you know, so much collapse, so many systems falling apart. And at that point, we have to have some sort of equanimity. We have to find a place in ourselves where we can accept at the depth of the mind, of the awakened heart, it accepts. It accepts everything. We do what we can do, but at some level, the, the classical contemplation on equanimity is all things are unfolding according to their karma. There's a certain place where some things will just unfold, and it's beyond our ability to do much. Whether it's the way our, what happens in our body, what happens in our relationships, some of it is so mysterious we don't even know why it happens. Why a friend turns to an enemy. Why something that we've built up and created then crashes. Why we get sick. Why a loved one dies before is their time. And it's in the face of those things that, that, that this quality of, of acceptance of, of trusting at the depth of everything, there's a lawful unfolding. We don't understand it, but it is as it is, because it is as it is. So the, all, all of these qualities of the Brahmaviharas work together, weave together to bring balance moving towards equanimity and acceptance, moving towards skillful response through compassion, moving towards attuning to the beautiful and the good and the joyful when, it, when it's there and cultivating that, moving towards not dwelling in aversion and hatred but being able to extend little by little, holding all beings with this friendliness, befriending living beings. 
And this is the activity in the heart, the cultivation of the heart of the Bodhisattva. In the Avantamsaka Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra, the Bodhisattva, Samantabhadra, that appears at the heart of the Sutra, talks about ten vows. These are called the ten vows of the Bodhisattva, which are vows that we can contemplate and very meaningful. The ninth vow of Samantabhadra talks about this cultivation this cultivation in relationship to the world around of this bodhisattva heart. Sudhana, to accommodate and benefit all living beings is explained like this. This is Samantabhadra speaking. I will accord with and take care of many kinds of beings, providing all manner of services and offerings for them. I will treat them with the same respect I show my own parents, teachers, elders, arahats, and even the Buddhas. I will serve them all equally without differences. I will be a good physician for the sick and suffering. I will lead those who have lost their way to the right road. I will be a bright light for those in the dark night and cause the poor and destitute to uncover hidden treasures. The Bodhisattva impartially benefits all living beings in this manner. Why is this? If a Bodhisattva accords with living beings, then she accords with and makes offerings to all the enlightened ones. If he can honour and serve living beings, then he honours and serves the Buddhas. If he makes living beings happy, (coughs) she is making all the Buddhas happy. Why is this? It is because all Buddhas take the mind of great compassion as their substance. Because of living beings, they develop great compassion. From great compassion, the enlightened mind is born. And because of the enlightened mind, they accomplish supreme perfect awakening. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks in the sand of barren wilderness. When the roots grow, when the roots get water, the branches, leaves, and flowers and fruits will flourish. The regal Bodhi tree growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By benefiting all beings with the water of great compassion, one can realize the flowers and fruits of the Bodhisattvas and Buddha's wisdom. Why is this? It is because by benefiting living beings with the water of great compassion, the bodhisattvas can attain supreme, perfect enlightenment. Therefore, bodhi belongs to living beings. Without living beings, no bodhisattva can achieve awakening. Good person, you should understand these principles in this way. When the mind is impartial towards all living beings, one can accomplish full and perfect great compassion. By using the mind of great compassion to accord with living beings, one perfects the offerings of the Dharma to the Buddhas. In this way, the Bodhisattva constantly accords with living beings. Even when the realms of empty space are exhausted, the realms of living beings are exhausted, the karmas of living beings are exhausted, and the afflictions of living beings are exhausted, I will still accord endlessly and continuously in thought after thought without cease, my body, speech and mind never weary of these deeds. So this, here is the articulation of this bodhisattva intent, intention in its uh, purest form. And we can see this as many, it's, it's an ideal that we can be like a garden, guide, guiding light. And we can see this, and I've just been um, reflecting since um, I mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi the other day, that she's recently been released after 21 years of house re- arrest. She had several attempts, assassination attempts on her life. She's been... Uh, you know, while she was under house arrest, her, her husband uh, couldn't come to see her before he died of cancer. Uh, he, was, uh, he lived in Oxford in the UK. 
And so she managed to make a video. She dressed up beautifully. She's such a beautiful woman, so delicate. And they call her the lady in Burma. She really is. You know, she's like this delicate flower with such enormous strength. You have no idea, you know. And she dressed up so beautifully, put those beautiful flowers she puts in her hair. And she went to make a video to express her love for her husband. And it arrived, it got to the UK two days after he died. She missed the growing up of her sons. She was in this atmosphere of intimidation and fear. And yet she kept this Bodhisattva heart. She kept practicing, just as we've been practicing this week. Gathering, calming, insight, contemplation, the Brahma Viharas. She said, even under the most crushing state machinery, courage rises up again and again. For fear is not the natural state of a civilized person. It's not our natural state. Our natural state is these Brahma Viharas, it's these divine qualities. This is the divine within the human. This is our natural state. Our natural state is to, we naturally have these qualities, we, they, they come forth all the time in different little ways and big ways. Fear and hatred is in our natural state. So as someone that practiced to clear the mind enough so that again and again and again she overcame fear until it didn't, I'm sure it doesn't touch her anymore. You see this in Mr. Mandela in South Africa, 27 years in prison in a cell the size of a 6 by 8 feet, something like that. Came out of that situation, which was dreadful. Wasn't able to see his family, some of his children that died. And yet he came out of that with the consciousness able to carry a whole country through its transitions. It's one person, what one person can do in the most indescribably oppressive circumstances to turn that around and then offer it back to the world. That's a classic, classic Bodhisattva way. These are people that are still alive that can, that can demonstrate, that demonstrated in their lives the path for us. Hopefully we won't have to suffer such challenges. But we should take heart. We should take heart when we see these beings and learn about their lives, read about them, and how did they do this? Because they're people like you and me. And yet they rose to the occasion. They undertook these enormous difficulties and they kept their hearts clear. They didn't succumb to bitterness. I mean, it would be so understandable, wouldn't it? You see, Mr. Mandela came out and really, let's go to war and just kill every, every white person. And it's totally understandable. I would understand it. Instead, he came out and he said, I love you all. You're all my children. And he took as his secretary a white Afrikaner woman who was absolutely devoted to him. And he went into the rugby stadium, which was the, the fiefdom of Afrikanerdom, and put on the rugby shirt of the Springbok. And just the whole place went crazy. It was such a symbolic act of dissolving these apartheid, these walls, that a whole nation was oppressed by. Walls that would seem like they would never come down. They would never crack, they would never crumble, and yet they did. Because of the consciousness, and just keep going, just keep going, just keep going, because it's, they're not true walls, they're false walls, and what is false will crumble. Ultimately it will crumble. Whether it's the Berlin Wall, whether it's the Apartheid Wall, whether it's the walls in our own mind that we defend against reality, eventually they will crumble. And it's in this we must have faith and hope and not give up. Because they didn't give up and they still don't give up. Aung San Suu Kyi is still giving her a message to the world. 
Mr. Mandela in 93 is still holding by a thread his life now. But there's something about his presence in that country that's still helping it hold. Huge, huge, massive contribution to people. So we shouldn't undermine ourselves and think we can't make a contribution because we can and we will and we have and we just keep going. You know, this is our destiny, this is our truth to live like this, to live this Bodhisattva way. It's our natural state of being. So the vows, we don't take the vows, the vows are already there. We just discover that they're there. Each heartbeat is this vow of the Bodhisattva. Each heartbeat is the beat of the Heart Sutra. Knowing that within form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Every expression is a manifestation of our awakening. Potentially. So Ajahn Chah said, he said, don't worry about it all too much. Don't make it too complicated which I want to do. He was much more simple. He said, it's, bit, it's a bit like being like this empty bell. He said, the mind is like this. It's empty. It's an empty bell. He said, when, you, when something you just trust, empty, trust in our practice, we keep emptying, we keep letting go. Don't, all these words, just let them go. What needs to remain will remain somewhere, or you'll hear it again somewhere else in a different way. He said, just trust, just keep letting be, opening, because as we empty, we can receive. And he said, then when something touches, there's a beautiful resonance. But we don't do that. We don't empty, we don't trust. We say, oh no, got to have some time. Got to write things down. Got to have a microphone. And we just, you know, it's like this. Okay, I'm ready now. I'm ready for life. And then something comes up and, and we can't resonate. We're too full. We can't hear, really. We can't hear awakening right here and now as it's manifesting the opportunities. So he, he would say, you know, just keep emptying every day. Just keep emptying your bell. <laughs> Let it all go, minute by minute, breathing out, breathing out. It's scary, it's like, oh, I'm so vulnerable. But you, when we won't be, when something comes, then the heart will respond, respond with compassion, it respond with equanimity, respond with joy, respond with kindness, it respond with contemplation, with mindfulness. Because that's our natural state. We don't have to get it, we don't have to earn it, we don't have to deserve it. It's our natural state, it's our natural inheritance. Whatever our circumstance, wherever we've come from, this is our birthright, this bodhicitta, awakened heart, present heart, divine heart, embodied within fully our humanity. This is our work, to embody it. Little by little it will embody and it will express itself through our embodiment. So maybe so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.